Season 5 of the Make Life Matter podcast is sponsored by AGTS, the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, and Evangel University. If God is calling you to take your ministry to the next level, I encourage you to visit agts.edu and learn how the experienced scholars at AGTS can equip and empower you for your Christ-centered service. I'm enrolled there in graduate school getting my Master's of Leadership and Ministry, and I would love for you to join me. Hey friends, welcome to the Make Life Matter podcast. I'm Angela Donatio, and each week I share compelling conversations with leading voices. They encourage us to ground our worth in the word instead of the narrative of the world. Together we'll make our lives matter no matter what. Here's this week's episode. Alisa Childers' story may be your own or that of someone you love, or perhaps you've encountered the ideas of progressive Christianity in your everyday life and you aren't sure how to respond. In a culture of endless questions, you need solid answers. As a leading apologist and author of the bestseller, Another Gospel, a lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity, Elisa Childers is a much needed voice in today's generation. She's a wife, a mom, an author, a blogger, and a speaker. And she was a member of the award-winning CCM Recording Group. Some of you might remember Zoe Girl. And she's a popular speaker at Apologetics and Christian Worldview Conferences. You can connect with her online at elisachilders.com. For someone who's unfamiliar, Elisa, with the term progressive Christianity, first, I want to just welcome you to the Make Life Matter podcast. And I know you live in this space, but for someone who's completely unfamiliar, right off the bat, can you help define that for our listeners? Yeah, progressive Christianity is actually very tough to define because Mm -hmm. it just works differently than historic Christianity. And when I say historic Christianity, it might help to define that to help us understand its opposite. Sure. Uh, When I'm talking about historic Christianity, what I'm trying to do is to draw from what is expressed as the original version of Christianity by Jesus, the apostles, the early church fathers, uh, that core, right? And then trace that through church history, because we're going to see that go off the rails lots of different times throughout church history. So when I say historic Christianity, I don't mean everything that happened in church history is is part of that. I'm talking sure. about that core that you can trace through. That's why we've had reformations and things like this. So I'm not, you know, defending a particular denomination or even uh, a label like evangelicalism. I'm defending the historic gospel, right? The one faith that Jude talks about being passed down once for all the saints. So uh, progressive Christianity is a little bit different in that it is largely non-credal. So in the progressive Christian movement, you might affirm the Nicene Creed. You might not. You you wouldn't have to. Um, it's it's really more about what you do than what you believe. It's not so much about beliefs. And it's not defined by beliefs. And so, uh, but with that said, when I researched the movement, what I discovered was that they're very much in agreement on many things. So they're in progressive Christianity, largely speaking, there's a denial of the idea of original sin, that humans are inherently sinful and that that sin would separate us from God. Um, There's a largely a rejection of a substitutionary approach to the atonement. And there's also largely a rejection of the idea that hell is a uh, a real place where, uh, p- you know, God would send people. And so I think that it could probably be defined more by what is denied in, in you know, that historically Christians have believed rather than what they affirm, because there's a broad spectrum of beliefs that fall under progressive Christianity, but it's also hallmarked 
by um, a, a change of mind on biblical sexuality as well. Mm. So I think if you put all those things together, it gives you a good picture of uh, what we see emerging in the movement of progressive Christianity. That's really helpful. A lot of people that are listening may be familiar with the term deconstruction, which has almost become sadly a little bit of a trendy word. But if Mm -hmm. we could lean into that for just a minute, Elisa, help us in context of like historical Christianity and how it's different from uh, progressive. It's so helpful for us. Um, How would you define deconstruction in the most understandable terms? Because when I talk to people sometimes about it as a pastor out here near D.C., some people, understandably so, have moved away from maybe traditions that they grew up with, mm-hmm. maybe even what we consider unhealthy doctrines or, or unhealthy practices of those doctrines. So how can you help us to separate, Elisa, deconstruction in an unhealthy sense from moving away from things that need to be uh, challenged or mm-hmm. uh altered or changed? Because I think that's where people can get tripped up in the understanding of what deconstruction truly means. This is a phenomenal question. And it's mm. the question, right? Because <laughs> right now, I mean, you Google deconstruction, and you're going to find all sorts of different things. Now, generally speaking, if you really stay in that hashtag, and you research the movement, one thing starts to emerge. But I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of people defining the word deconstruction in various ways. Mm. So for some people, they'll use it synonymously with just going through a time of doubt, or maybe uh, rejecting false beliefs, or maybe Like you mentioned, they grew up in a stream of Christianity that needed some theological correction. So they got rid of the the wrong beliefs and they, you know, got back to a place of right belief. Um, So I I used to get that. I used to kind of say, well, that makes sense. You know, you just deconstruct the bad beliefs and reconstruct the good ones. But then as as I've been studying the movement, because I'm actually currently researching and writing a book on deconstruction. That'll be my third book, long time from now. So (laughs) nobody get excited yet. But as I research, what's really emerging is that what I think the hallmark of deconstruction as we see it manifest online is that it is hallmarked by a rejection of biblical authority and it moves to the authority of the self. I think that's Mm -hmm. 100% what you see in deconstruction. So with that said, what I try to persuade Christians to do is that if you're talking about engaging your doubts, if you're talking about getting rid of untrue beliefs or bad beliefs or beliefs that don't line up with scripture, wonderful. We all should do that every day, right? Every day. We should not suppress questions. We should invite the questions, engage with the questions. But it if we have not abandoned biblical authority, then I don't think we should call it deconstruction. Mm. And the reason for that is two reasons. Number one, what I mentioned about what we're seeing manifest online in the deconstruction movement, but also because the word deconstruction in this context is really traced back to postmodern philosophers from the 60s. Okay. And that has to do with a rejection of absolute truth. Got it. And so what we see in the deconstruction movement is really well-meaning, a lot of well-meaning people saying, I want to, I want to deconstruct my American Western Christianity and I want to reconstruct true Christianity. But the problem is, is that most people who are waiting for you online to guide you through your deconstruction process are going to conflate uh, historic core doctrines of the gospel with what they perceive to be American Christianity, things like mm. the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, biblical sexuality. So we have to be very, very careful. 
And I would say, if you are, if you are committed to biblical authority, or even you, you could be questioning biblical authority and trying to figure out if you even think the Bible is reliable. But if you're on that path, I would still not call that deconstruction. If you're pursuing Mm -hmm. absolute truth about the nature of things, just call it reformation, call it truth seeking, call it walking through doubt. (laughs) But deconstruction is really a postmodern phenomenon. And I I think we need to to keep them separate. Mm, That's so helpful. I want to ask a little bit about your own story. And then I want to ask a little bit more, dig a little deeper in what you were just sharing, because I think it would be helpful for some listeners to know these are the non-negotiables when it comes to the Bible as the authority of our life versus some non-essentials that might be doctrinal differences among denominational streams. And you've taught on this quite a bit. So I want to ask you about it, but I would like for our listeners who maybe don't even know your own story. Some you yourself walk through a, a season, which is almost hard for me to imagine as I read your resources, I listen to your podcast that your own story includes and in, in being involved in a church that was a progressive pastor, he referred to himself as a hopeful agnostic, and you found your way back. What that does for me, Elisa, is give so much encouragement to those we love, those of our listeners that might be struggling, or those that have loved ones that are wrestling to know that, that you are now this leading voice. Mm-hmm. But at one time, you yourself struggled with these false narratives surrounding Mm -hmm. progressive Christianity. So can you invite us into a little bit of your story, not only maybe how you found yourself there, but what was so helpful for you to find yourself, find your way back out? Yeah. Thank you for that. I grew up in a Christian home, had great Christian parents, and I truly loved Jesus as far back as I can remember. I loved the Bible. I read and studied God's word from the time I could read and write I knew that I could trust this book. I knew in my bones that it was the word of God and never questioned mm-hmm. that, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so it really wasn't until my adult life when, I mean, I had spent years in ministry and youth ministry and all the, all growing up, I was in ministry, uh, even spent several years in the contemporary Christian music industry touring. And it was toward the end of that, that my husband and I started attending a church right here in the Bible Belt. And this was a non-denominational evangelical church. We loved it. We loved the people. We loved the pastor. He had this intellectual approach to sermons that neither one of us had ever been exposed to before. And so after attending for about eight months, the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller group. And he described it like, uh, he compared it to seminary. He said, "This mm-hmm. if you go through this class, this four-year class, you'll come out on the other side with a seminary level education. Now I was married with a new baby and this sounded really exciting. I just really wanted to dig deeper into my faith. And uh, what was made very clear early on in the class was that the pastor had really sort of slipped into agnosticism. He regarded himself as a hopeful agnostic. Mm. And um, of course that took me back, but I thought, well, I want to keep an open mind. I don't want to be judgmental. But over the course of about the four months that I stayed in the class, just about everything that I had believed about Jesus and and God, and especially about the Bible, these things were picked apart. They were deconstructed mm. and explained away. And for many other people in the class, in fact, everyone, as far as I know, they ended up rejecting the Christianity that they had known before. Some of them mm-hmm. reconstructed to some version of a broader spirituality um, some became progressive Christians, but some walked away. Mm. And um, so this sent me into a faith crisis that 
I have called deconstruction in the past. I'm rethinking that now because mm-hmm. um, it, I nearly lost my faith. That part of it is, um, it was dark. And I I came up to the edge of agnosticism where I just, mm-hmm. I didn't know if God really existed or not, or if this was just all sociological things that have been given to me to, to make me feel happy. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I pursued truth. Though I never let go of truth. And that's why I'm questioning whether or not now that I'm researching deconstruction, mm-hmm. if I should even call it that, because I always wanted to know what was true in reality and line up my beliefs with that, regardless of how I felt about those truths. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though I think I bought into a little bit of relativism, I still wanted the truth. I wanted to know what was true. So I'm, I'm, th- I'm rethinking that a little bit, but um that, yeah. So I, I cried out to God one night and just said, if you're real, if you really exist, please give me answers. And through a series of events, I was led to apologetics and studying the evidence for why I've believed all these things my whole life. And of course there were uh, things I've corrected along the way back, but the Lord really used apologetics and a deep study of theology and church history to rebuild my faith. And mm-hmm. so I'm so thankful for that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where, you know, the reason that I focused my first book on progressive Christianity is because years later, the church where this all took place came out as a progressive Christian community. They took down the apostle and Nicene creed from their website. Mm. They wrote their own creed. They put that up and um, they were now fully affirming of the new cultural sexuality. They were, um, and they said, we are progressive Christians now. And so I thought, wow, I had never heard that phrase before that, but that's when I really began studying the movement to find out what do progressive Christians believe? What is this thing? Because to me, it was no different than atheism with Jesus slapped on it. Um, yeah, that's why apologetics was able to help me because there were no apologists at that time Mm -hmm. addressing the movement of progressive Christianity. Mm -hmm. They were talking about the claims of atheists, but they were the same claims we encountered in the class. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, that's why when I first started blogging, I wasn't talking about progressive Christianity because I thought, well, nobody needs that. It's just, you just learn all this stuff and you can, but then I realized a lot of people did need that connection. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's why I started talking about it so specifically. Well, first of all, thank God for grace that you got out of that situation and you make a couple of, of really just interesting insights that I was pondering as you were talking. First of all, you, you were, I don't know what the right word of is intrigued or just, um, I don't know something must've been a little bit lacking for you prior that you were drawn to the intellectual pursuit that maybe this class offered. And, and I can understand a lot of Christians feel like, Oh, you were just raised and it's just a crutch or it's a placebo or it's or whatever. There's nothing wrong with an intellectual pursuit of, of who Christ is in a deeper way. I think where people may not understand fully until they're kind of listening to you talk is I'm even, I'm even reticent to use the words progressive Christianity side by side, Elisa, because I appreciate you saying it really is no different than atheism with Jesus slapped on it. Because when Mm -hmm. you start removing all of the non-negotiables, the reliability of scripture, the atonement through the cross and the resurrection, you know, a literal heaven and hell, biblical definition of sexuality, you can go through kind of these loose framework of things that get kind of bunched together under syncretism or progressive Christianity, really it's no Christianity at all. And that's, that's really the assertion of your book. It can seem so 
inviting to people who just want a, a deeper, more intellectual pursuit of the gospel. And, and yet what they're actually doing is, is embracing atheism, agnosticism and atheism. Talk about that for a second. How, how do we, I guess I'm thinking this way, Elisa, I know people who I would consider and call progressive Christians. I don't know if they would even use that term to describe themselves, Mm -hmm. but because they no longer adopt or adhere to these traditional historic views, the the reliability of scripture, some of these non-negotiables you've mentioned, how do we even handle the fact that there's still the word Christianity attached to what you and I might see as not really Christianity, which is hence the word, another gospel. I mean, it comes straight from Paul saying, who has bewitched you? This is another mm-hmm. gospel That's right, that you're yeah. preaching here. How can we help move this narrative to a point where people truly understand what you are now practicing mm-hmm. as a faith, quote unquote, really is such a perversion of the gospel that it isn't the gospel at all. What a mm-hmm. subtle trick, not so subtle to us, but what a, what a very, uh, smart Mm -hmm. tool the enemy is using to still couch it in a way that people can feel comfortable Mm -hmm. still calling it a form of Christianity. And I know that's a lot. I just kind of got a bunch of thoughts out there that were in my mind because I I could hear someone saying, well, I just want a more intellectual approach to the gospel. That's Mm -hmm. fine. You'll Mm -hmm. never exhaust the Bible. So do all those things of intellectual approaches, but where is this line and how do we help want someone to see just because it's being called progressive Christianity doesn't mean it's just some other yeah. available form of, of a denomination for you. It really is anti-biblical. And in a lot of cases, Elisa, people are going to go to hell believing mm-hmm. what they're believing, which is the ultimate yeah. lie that the enemy is yeah. selling us. So can you, can you unpack yeah. some of those thoughts as, as maybe yeah. I've studied and I'm sure maybe some of our listeners might be asking as well. One of the things I've found as I studied progressive Christianity is that a lot of people who went on to identify as progressive Christians, or at least believe uh, things that line up with progressive Christianity, like you said, whether they call themselves that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the really interesting things is that in progressive Christianity, it seems like all the beliefs are on the same level. Mm. So you'll often hear a progressive Christian say something like, well, hey, you know, me and my friend disagree about the resurrection. How is that any different than you and the uh, Calvinist disagreeing about predestination and free will? Right. Well, you know, typically for historically Christians have agreed that there's this core, right? There are these beliefs that are more important than others. And where you land on predestination and free will, it's not unimportant. It's not uh, it's not something that we can just say, oh, whatever. I mean, we all want to line up what we believe with scripture on those things, but some things in the, in the scripture themselves are less clear. That's why mm-hmm. so many Christians disagree about predestination sure. and free will is because it's not easy to figure out, sure. but the gospel is, mm-hmm. that's the point. And so where I would point people to maybe start, I, I would say a little bit of diagnosis first. So I think how we got here, we didn't get here overnight. Yeah. Right. I think with the rise and I'm this might step on some toes. I know a lot of wonderful mega churches. This is not an indictment on churches getting big or being smart about how they grow. Not at all. But with the rise of the more corporate approach to church, the CEO model, the mega church, the seeker friendly church, 
I think people don't even know what the gospel is anymore. Uh, It's so much easier to get in a pulpit and tell people to be good neighbors and to be kind to those around them and to be good members of the community. It's not going to offend anybody to tell them that. So the tendency for, for people to conflate that with the gospel has been really strong, especially in the past 20 years or so. So I think we've gotten to a a generation where people don't actually know what the gospel is. Mm. And so I'll point people to 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 3. This is actually a creed that Paul recorded for us that dates within a few years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So this is the arguably one of the earliest iterations of the gospel available to us. It predates the book it's recorded in by 20 years. Wow. And in that creed, Paul says, I'm about to tell you what is of utmost importance. Like these are the beliefs that are of utmost importance. And he lists that Jesus died for my sins, Mm. right? He doesn't even mention being a good neighbor there, (laughs) that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, uh, resurrected on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then the 12. And then Paul goes on to list 500 eyewitnesses, including himself. So what we have there is the seedbed of the idea of the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Two times it mentions in accordance with the scripture. So there's a strong emphasis on the revealed word of God that they had at the yes. time, which was the Old Testament. And then the the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And this is non-negotiable. Like at yes. the, now Christianity is more than that. It cannot be any less. So any denial of those things is not Christianity. And I think that's what people need to realize. Now, there are also very early creeds regarding Jesus' deity that we find all through the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So um, in fact, um, on my podcast, I may be talking about that coming up soon with a scholar, Gary Habermas, about these early creeds that we find embedded in our New Testament that really tell us what the earliest Christians believed the gospel was. Yes. And it can't be less than that. We can't deny those things and still call it Christianity. So that's like my base level thesis there, mm-hmm. that we have to know what it is. We have to know what yes. the thing is to know what the counterfeit is. Mm, that's so good. We have to know what it is to know what the counterfeit. I have a friend that's a bank uh, vice president. And he said, if you want to know the counterfeit, you don't study the counterfeit bill. You study the original that's right. to the point where you know the original, even in your own story, Elisa, you're saying still with all of my questions and where I was going, being led astray, you really wanted to know truth. There was still a, a standard and, and what's coming through loud and clear. And I hope our listeners are really hearing it is you can, you can recognize progressive Christianity or a false gospel by, by the denial of the things that are non-negotiable. Christianity cannot be less than these things. It can Mm -hmm. certainly be more, but when you get into things that end up now sliding into simply a social justice gospel Mm -hmm. or a redefinition of biblical sexuality, or maybe Jesus raised in the dead, maybe he didn't, maybe we really don't need uh, an atonement. You might even have heard someone think that, God asking Christ to be sacrificed was child abuse. I mean, Mm -hmm. all these things are addressed in Elisa's book. It might seem foreign if that's a foreign idea for you, but those are things that are actually out there being taught. And so it's, it behooves us. If you feel like you're a lifelong Christian and you're listening, maybe these are new things for you, but these are very prominent themes being taught. And sadly among millennials, Gen Xers, uh, these are leading, uh, definitions or redefinitions of what the Bible uh, and scripture is teaching. So Elisa, I appreciate you giving us this kind of list of non-negotiables. Here's what it cannot be any less than 
because even I interviewed Dr. George Barna and he and I talked about this for a while. It's almost like a, a big smorgasbord, a buffet people are walking mm. through and, and that's a, kind of a loose definition of syncretism, but I'll take a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I kind of jokingly said to him, Jesus is not Mr. Potato Head. We don't just right. <laughs> decide only I would call, you know, Jesus, Mr. Use that analogy with Dr. George Barna, but that's great. That is what people are doing now. I'll take that ear and that nose and that eye and we're recreating a man-made Jesus that looks, looks nothing like the Jesus of the right. gospel. And so if we yeah. don't know what the gospel actually says, if we don't know what Jesus words actually are, if we don't know what Paul actually teaches, then we will make up our own version of the gospel and our culture certainly um, is, is swimming in that direction. So you're swimming upstream to try to adhere to non-negotiable tenets of scripture. So I appreciate that so much. What if someone's listening, at least in these last few moments that we have, and they're saying, okay, I hear you, but I still have questions and I have doubts. My father and I, he's a veteran pastor of 50 years. He and I just finished writing a book on the life of Thomas and how it answers a lot of our hard questions, the encounters he had with Jesus. Um, Jesus is not afraid of our doubts, but there is a line where doubt turns to unbelief, turns to deconstruction. So if someone's listening and they're so bruised by disappointment, Elisa, they're so disenfranchised, let's say with a particular church or what they've seen or witnessed or experienced, what encouragement do you have with them of what they can do with their doubt? Mm. That's a great question. And I love that you brought up Thomas because I love in that story when Thomas is like, and sometimes I've even thought, is Thomas really a doubter or is he just like a normal, reasonable person, (laughs) right? It's like, he's just been told this guy's been raised from the dead. And he's like, uh, like any of us would be like, yeah, I'm going to need to see that for myself. You know, that's more like a, being a, being a healthy skeptic maybe, (laughs) but, but I love that when he does encounter Jesus, Jesus doesn't shame him. He doesn't say, Oh, Thomas, you should just read your scriptures. And, you know, and, and he, he said, he offered evidence. Jesus said, Mm -hmm. here, you know, put your fingers here. You you can see. And then it's after that, that he says, uh, something like stop doubting and just believe he didn't, he didn't lead with that. And so I think that one of the big things I would say to somebody who's going through that is I think that sadly, it's a necessary part of your growth as a, as a Christian. Mm. If you have never questioned the beliefs that have been handed to you, Mm. um, then I would be concerned that your faith is not strong enough to withstand the waves of, of doubt or the, the deconstruction hashtag that's waiting for you on social media. Mm. So I would urge Christians to engage their doubts. I think that we're coming to a time in church history where that's getting less taboo, where the church is saying, okay, look, we're not afraid of questions. We want to bring in the questions and we want you to engage your questions. And I think that's really important. Um, so I, I think that it's healthy and good and a necessary part of growth and maturity to, to engage with our doubts. We, we need to, and it's not a sign of a weak faith. Faith and doubt are not opposites. Unbelief is the opposite of faith, That's not right. doubt. That's so, right. um, that would be my encouragement. And it's about the disenfranchisement. Um, you know, it's easy to say the words I'm going to say, it's harder to walk it. But mm. I've heard it said, you can't judge a belief system based on its abuses. And sadly, right now, there's a lot of abuses. Yeah, there really are. There are a lot of abuses of authentic Christianity. There's a lot of charlatans out there. There's a lot of fake versions of Christianity, even within the right doctrine camp, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so acknowledging that might be just some some freedom to say, look, I, I might have grown up and it's going to be sometimes a mixed bag. 
well-meaning mm. people who do bad things. Mm. Um, and so I think what we have to do is we, it, it's more than ever, we are reminded that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and not a person. I know for me, it was tough when the Ravi Zacharias scandal yeah. hit because he was the first apologist I ever heard. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, my parents really instilled in me that we don't put our faith in in men. So it didn't shake my faith. It was sad. I was sad for him. I was sad for his yes. family, sad for yes. his victims. Yes. But I, I never, um, it didn't shake my faith at all because mm. I've always had my faith in Jesus, not on fallible humans. And so that might be something to keep in mind as well. Absolutely. Such helpful insight. And, and I love that you drew out, uh, Thomas's response to not only Thomas's response, but uh, initiated by Jesus's response that he did not shame Thomas for his doubts. He invited him to come closer which mm-hmm. is actually one of the taglines of my book, discover Jesus invitation, come closer when mm-hmm. doubt drives us away. Doubt will Good. tend to try to drive us away. And like you said, there is no shortage of hashtag deconstruction and the like to, to go ahead and, and invite you to, 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 to go further into that process of moving away from God. What we're encouraging you today is to take your doubts to Jesus, to the true person of who he is. He's more than capable of handling our questions and our doubts and, and to keep our eyes on who he is, the reality, the truth of the gospel, and not to allow ourselves to be swayed and to be uh, deceived by false gospel. Really, when I was studying the book of Revelation a couple of years ago, Elisa, I was, I've studied it a few times, you, you know, you get in the weeds of like, mm-hmm all the analogy and the allegory. And, you know, my husband's taught it a few times and there's just going to be things we're not going to know and fully understand the side of heaven. However, right. what I was so struck by is I, my degrees in music and I have a lot of experience in musical theater. And so I'll sometimes say things like the leading character. And so indulge me is the way I phrase this, but the leading character in the book of revelation is deception. It's all over the book of, Re- of revelation. And so a, a key characteristic of whenever we are in the end times, end times is deception and you mm. see it running rampant. And so when you see things that are completely contradictory to the word of God, it's deception. And the author of deception is the devil. We just have to call things what they are. And if we continue to allow doubt in and of itself is not a sin. God welcomes right. us to bring our doubts to his but to, to recognize deception, and there are numerous scriptures that say, be careful that you are not deceived mm-hmm. and very strong warnings against false teachers that teach deception. So Elisa, I appreciate you taking this challenge head on. Maybe it became uh, your life passion because of your own story, but I, I recognize the need it is among so many who consider themselves lifelong Christians and are just trying to be more empathetic. And I'm putting that in air quotes. If you're not watching or sympathetic to those around them, listen, love without truth is not love. It's deception. And so we have Mm. to be very guarded. And even the way we're redefining, Oh, I just want to love all people. And, and who am I to judge? And we kind of get into that, those phrases that sound so warm and fuzzy, But if we're not careful behind them are deception and love that does not lead people to truth is not love. Mm. Love that leads people to lies is going to be bondage Mm. and it's truth that sets us free. And so if we know the truth and recognize the counterfeit, 
then we can be a voice of truth in the life of others. And that's my layman's way of saying what Elisa could say so beautifully. No, that was a great I, sermon. I I'm loved just, it. I was, just, I, was, I was here for it. Oh, that was good. I'm just good kind stuff. of reiterating. It breaks my heart. I think that's what's underneath that as a pastor, Elisa, is my yeah. husband, I've been in ministry so long. Just like you said, you felt sad with Robbie Zacharias. I feel, yes, righteous indignation and anger and the need to defend the gospel and all of those things as an apologist and a, and a theologian. But then underneath that is just, it makes me sad. My heart hurts to see yeah. people that I know are maybe think they're actually doing the right thing. I mean, a lot of things have been done in the name of God throughout history that are not the right thing. So passion and zealousness and fervency, we cannot equate that with truth. We have to understand that truth is a non-negotiable and truth is defined by the person of Jesus Christ and the word of God. And so when you see things that you don't know, I don't know if that lines up with truth, know what the word actually says. You can dig deeper into Lisa's uh, entire ministry, her podcast, her resources. And I know that you have a brand new book coming out. In fact, it's just come out yeah. at the time that this airs, not only another gospel, which if you're watching, I have a copy of it right here. Uh, some of the things that we've talked about right here, questions about heaven and hell. Is the Bible reliable? Is Jesus the only way to heaven? Um, which Jesus answered that question for Thomas. Thomas is one of the ones that said, I don't, I don't have no idea where you're going. And I don't know the way to go there. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. So these are the kind of non-negotiable statements that we're talking about. So tell us, Elisa, the brand new book that's coming out before we wrap up here. And uh, she's going to pray over us in just a moment, guys. So I want you to hang with us for just a few more minutes, but tell us about your new book. And I know you have a DVD, a study Mm -hmm. guide with your first book. So how can people connect with you, know all of your resources and the new book that you have available? Thanks so much for asking about that. I'm very excited. It's just come out. It's called Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. Mm. So the that book is really dealing with s- cultural slogans like live your truth, like yeah. you are enough. You should put yourself first. You only live once. You know, hashtag YOLO. Uh, We deal with the topic of authenticity and how the world is telling us to just unleash our most authentic self. But as Christians, we know that our most authentic self is a sinner and needs to get saved. So there's that. And it's there's a lot of humor, a lot of storytelling. So I hope people will pick that up. Also, the study guide you talked about for another gospel for the book on progressive Christianity. I'm very excited about that. That's just come out in September and that is um, that is a six-week small group study guide that you can go through with your small group at church. There are videos that guide you through. So each week you'll watch a video together and do the discussion. And then you'll have uh, a participant's guide to go through as you read another gospel and then really, really apply it to your life and to the relationships around you and great discussion questions. I'm very excited about that too. So you can find uh, links to everything on elisachilders.com. Uh, for the for the study guide and the DVD experience, you can go to Tyndale.com and search that up. And then, the, of course, all the books are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the places. I love it. I love it. I'm so grateful for your voice. You're just one of my favorite um, theologians, apologists, and just for so many reasons, your voice is so needed. And you give, you give such astute, um, crystal clear answers to what can feel very foggy and muddy. And I think the enemy uses so much confusion to get us so muddled, muddled up 
We don't know how to have conversations. So if some of these things have opened up even questions for you, or if you're like, yes, I've heard my child or my grandchild say these kind of statements, um, or you yourself have kind of found yourself on maybe even unwittingly moving towards some other version of Christianity than than the authentic word of God, I cannot encourage you enough to not only pick up Elisa's resources, she has a tremendous podcast. Her social media is very active that you can watch a lot of clips. It's going to give you language around some of these, what might feel confusing topics of our day and uh, be aware, you know, we are to, we are to know the times that we are living in. And this is one of the primary issues of our day in our American, American culture, at least is the uh, distortion and perversion of the gospel to a point where it's just no gospel at all. So Elisa, I'm so grateful for you, for your time here on the podcast. I always close with one last question and I'm maybe more than normal, a little bit curious to know who your answer is, but you inspire so many people to make life matter. Our life is not going to matter the way God intended, unless it's really fully rooted in who Jesus is. We are sinners saved by grace mm-hmm. and by faith in Jesus Christ. And if nothing is a sin, then why did Jesus need to come? So let's just remember that. Um, let's have a healthy view of who we are to know that without Jesus, we are nothing, but other than Jesus and the way that he frames everything, who else in the Bible most inspires you to make life matter, Elisa? I love this question because we read through the Old Testament and we read about really deeply sinful and broken people, right? They just continually rebel against God and there's this struggle. And and so I'm so inspired by each and every one of them for those reasons of just knowing, you know, especially even somebody like David who committed these horrible sins and yet still is called a man after God's own heart because he models what it looks like to repent. But there is one character that stands out to me in the Bible that really doesn't have this major falling kind of rebellion experience. And that's Daniel. Mm. And here's what I love about Daniel. And here's where I'm really inspired by Daniel as a person is from the time he's a teenager until he's in the lion's den at 80 something years old. He just refuses to compromise. Mm. And uh, I've, I've often thought about Daniel and I've come up with slogans for him. He, he was a man who could not be bought. Ooh. You couldn't buy him. You couldn't, you know, he, he didn't care if you made him second to the king or if you threw him in a prison. He was just going to mm-hmm. continually serve and obey God and do the right thing and give the message that is required. He's a man without a price. Ooh. And I also love um, the, the thing I think about Daniel is he was crowned in a perishing kingdom. And, and mm. what I mean by that is there's this scene at the end when the, the Medes and the Persians are breaking through and it's the big feast and they, they finally call for Daniel to come back in and they're, they're like, they like make him, uh, they crown him high up and they're about to get sacked. Right. And that's the message he has to give them. So I just imagine it's almost humorous with him with like mm. the, you know, he gets crowned and he's got all this garb on and he's like, yeah, you're going to, your kingdom is perishing right now. Like it's mm. literally, and I love that. He's just like, he doesn't care. He didn't care what crown you put on his head or what dungeon you throw him in. He's just going to always mm. serve the Lord and be obedient. So I love, I love Daniel for that. I can see why. I mean, I'm sure he he had to have flaws. I mean, no one in the Bible is sinless except Jesus, but we don't see them on display. We don't know any of the major issues. And I think because the book is not that long, we forget that he serves so many different administrations. That's right. It's also such a beautiful example of how we can continue to maintain our faith and be unmoved despite 
who's in office, who's not in office, what administration is going on, what's happening around us. And, uh, and he, he just continued to be unshakable in his faith. So I loved your little taglines there. Maybe there'll be a book about <laughs> Daniel one day. I know right? but he's such, he's such a, uh, an, an example for us of, of living, living an uncompromised life in such a compromised culture. Yes, so, yes. so thank you. I'm not surprised. And, uh, and again, we just, we just bless you, Elisa. And I, I just ask my listeners to pray for you because you are on the front lines of this battle and it cannot be easy. I know you do it with such grace and, uh, and I'm so grateful, but I know that, that, that puts you under constant, um, a firing line in your family. And so we just want you to know that we're continuing to pray for you and lift you up because the call that God has entrusted you with is, um, is weighty, but I don't want it to be heavy. And so mm-hmm. I just continue to pray for you that God gives you such wisdom and insight as he has, and also guides you to be able to do this with such grace that you've modeled for us so beautifully. So thank, thank you, you for, for the voice that you bring to so many of us. And I would love to invite you to just to pray of our listeners as we close. Absolutely. Well, father, thank you so much for this conversation. And I pray for every person listening that you would give them the courage and clarity to be able to stand for you like Daniel in our culture that is just completely swept up in lies and in a rejection of truth itself. Lord, I pray that uh, every Christian listening to this would be encouraged to know that we have the same Holy Spirit we've always had, the church has always had. We have the same word of God that doesn't change, that bedrock of truth that we can plant our feet in. And Lord, for the the ones who are listening who have been uh, disenfranchised or they've they've had some serious church hurt and even spiritual abuse or whatever it may be, Lord, we know that you are a God of justice. That's mm-hmm. it's one of your attributes and all, everything will be made right. And that's what we hope for as Christians. Even if we don't see that justice here on earth, we can trust in you and know that one day everything will come in before your judgment. And, and if we're in you, then we know that You are our advocate to the Father, Jesus. We're so thankful. And I just pray that every heart would be encouraged today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining the conversation. If you've been inspired to make life matter, share a review and subscribe at cpnshows.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Connect with me at angeladenadio.com, Facebook at Angela Donatio VOV, and Instagram at Angela Donatio. Until next week, let's make life matter.